Well, good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, welcome to this uh, LSE Ideas and uh, Ralph Darendorf uh, Symposium uh, Public Debate. Uh, my name is Professor Michael Cox. I'm chair at LSE and one of the founding directors of Ideas uh, here at the London School of Economics. Uh, Ideas attempts to engage in every issue of global significance and for Europeans and indeed the world there is perhaps no issue more pressing and more difficult to resolve than the current crisis in Europe. To lead this debate, Ideas and the LSE are delighted to welcome a number of speakers this evening, but in particular, if I might say, uh, Robert Cooper, who has recently joined both Ideas and the LSE as a visiting professor. Um, in effect, this is his inaugural uh, lecture. Uh, Robert needs a little introduction, so I will introduce him. Uh, he joined the Foreign Office in 1970. He served in several posts, including Japan and Germany. In 1989, he was appointed head of the policy planning staff at the Foreign Office. He was later made the UK Special Representative in Afghanistan before taking up a post in the European Union in 2002. Uh, he was there responsible to Zolana, sorry, Xavier Solana and assisted with the implementation of European strategic security and defence policy. A well-known public intellectual, he's the author of two influential studies on the modern world, the postmodern state and the world order, published in 2000, and the breaking of nations, order and chaos in the 21st century. And as I said, from this, this month, or next month, this month indeed, he will be a professor in the LSE Ideas. Robert will present, he said, for half an hour exactly. He even knows the number of words. And then we will have a discussion which will be led by John Pete, who's already here, a European editor for The Economist magazine. And there will be an empty seat at the end. They're waiting for Richard Corbett, former member of the European Parliament and current advisor to President Herman Van Rompuy. This will go on for about one hour and this will then be followed by a question and answers for about half an hour. Robert, it's great to have you and John, and soon to be Robert, to talk to the proposal this evening, the discussion this evening, Reinventing Europe, One Crisis, Many Futures. I wonder if we could give Robert an LSE welcome. Robert. Thank you very much, Michael. And I want to start by uh, thanking LSE uh, for uh, uh, giving me the honor of the title of visiting professor. I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about the term professor, uh, but I like the idea of visiting very much indeed. <laughs> I, I never studied at LSE. Um, but there are lots of LSE figures in my own intellectual history. Uh, for me, um, Ernest Gellner was one of the people who uh, represented a key moment in my, in my life when I, I read some of his things. Um, I was a big, deep admirer of Fred Halliday um, and uh, the um, Alan Millward uh, wrote a book entitled The European Rescue of the Nation State uh, which just about sums up my views on, on Europe. So I am, uh, 
had an honorary connection with LSE for a long time. When, uh, when Adam and Eve, because I want to start at the beginning, when, when Adam and Eve uh, left the Garden of Eden, driven out by the angel with the flaming sword, Adam turned to Eve and said, we are now entering a transitional period. <laughs> well, there are always transitional periods, but it seems to me that we're now undergoing a particularly big transition. Uh, there is a world being born around us that I don't think we understand. Uh, this is a world of uh, global economics and of global media. And if you think that... Um, the coming of the printing press uh, was what put an end to the domination of the church in Europe and the coming of the railways and industry was what created the nation state, then something new is going to happen as a result of what we have now with global economics and global media and we don't know what this is. These raise profound questions uh, which I think academics, I think that at these points you need to turn again to the fundamental things about what you think states are, uh, what you think sovereignty is, what you think legitimacy means. And these questions are all going to be raised in the future as they're raised already. And in Britain, the particular form in which they're raised is normally connected to the European Union, which is, in a way, a little version of, uh, of globalisation, uh, which uh, in this country few people seem much to like. I'm not going to uh, tell you what's going to happen in the euro crisis tonight, nor how to solve it, because I don't know the answer to either of those things. I'm going to talk about two things. First, I'm going to talk about Britain in Europe, and then uh, I'm going to say something about uh, what's wrong with Europe, one of the things that's wrong with Europe, and how it should be fixed. Before I say either of those things, I ought to make it's clear where I stand. And that is, I think that the, uh, the Europe that we have today uh, is the best Europe that we've ever had. And the heart of this is the European Union and also NATO. And in the light of all of the history uh, that there is behind us, we ought to understand that the European Union is a kind of political miracle, man-made political miracle. In Britain, the debate in, on Europe is very polarised um, and uh, those who are supporters of the European Union are sometimes afraid to criticise it. Uh, so I wanted, before I criticise it, to make absolutely clear uh, that I am about its largest admirer. But then I'm going to go on and say what's wrong with it, or one of the things. But let me first start by saying something about Britain and Europe. In the new book which has uh, just been published by Stephen Wall on the history of British, uh, the British negotiations, um, there are two things that stand out. Uh, the first of these is that um, uh, Macmillan, Wilson and Heath were all concerned primarily with Britain's standing and influence. Their decision, their wish to join the European Union began as a political wish. Uh, they did not see some kind of special relationship with the USA as an alternative. Instead, they feared 
that if they were not part of uh, the most influential body in Europe, then the relationship with the US would decline. The story that you hear often here that membership of the European Union was sold as an economic project is a myth. Macmillan set out the case in political terms, including the goal of political unity, which he said he would naturally accept. Wilson told the TUC that the European project might one day lead to a federation. Margaret Thatcher also saw the European Union in political terms. First and foremost, she saw it uh, as part of the defences against communism, um, a view not so different, perhaps, from the original American conception. This view of um, Macmillan, Wilson and Heath seems still to me to be fundamentally right. Britain is a medium-sized power. If we want to have influence, we need to combine with others. We have done, we, speaking as a Brit now, we've done well in bringing the European Union uh, along with the causes that we believe in on big questions such as Iran and the Balkans and on particular issues such as Burma or Zimbabwe. Occasionally, uh, the Europeans have got together um, uh, and this is what I think Macmillan and uh, Heath and Wilson saw the European Union for. Occasionally, the, the Europeans have got together to take a line different from that of the Americans. Uh, this was done over the Helsinki Conference in the 1970s, something which Kissinger didn't fancy very much. Um, uh, we did it over the Middle East, starting with the Venice Declaration, in which Lord Carrington played an important role, the first big statement recognizing the right of the Palestinians to self-determination, still some way off. Um, uh, we did it also rather badly to begin with in the Balkans at the time when the Americans thought they didn't have a dog in that fight. We did it badly then because the European Union was very ill-equipped to deal with that situation. Uh, but we later got better. Um, and in fact, although the U.S. presence, the U.S. involvement and NATO's involvement was politically essential. Militarily, what did the damage in the Balkans and what ended the war in Bosnia uh, was Anglo-French artillery rather than NATO bombs. Um, uh, and then, by the way, there was a small coda to the um, uh, European line in the Balkans um, which took place in Macedonia when the Americans also wanted to stand aside and the Europeans intervened, but no one has heard of that because it was successful. The, um, uh, we ought to have had a common European position over Iraq, supposing there had been real discussions in Europe. Perhaps, and I underline perhaps, we might have been able to agree that we would support America provided the inspections were allowed to run their course and every count was proved. Perhaps not. But it was definitely a failure that we didn't try. That something like that might have been possible uh, is in some way proved by the fact that after the uh, disaster with Iraq, um, disaster for Europe, disaster for transatlantic relations, above all, disaster in Iraq, um, after that, um, a British-French-German uh, initiative on Iran 
um, initially against U.S. resistance, uh, has in fact become the main diplomatic instrument for handling Iran, now involving uh, the U.S. as well, China, Russia, the full European Union, uh, and led by my former boss, uh, Lady Ashton. Um, So uh, this demonstrates that uh, what um, Macmillan, Wilson, Heath foresaw uh, uh, was right. Uh, that if the Europeans got their act together, then they could do something. The second thing that emerges when you look at the period of the negotiations, um, the first point was that the motives were political. The second point that emerges when you look at that period um, is that being outside is terrible. The uh, period of uh, about um, uh, 15 years from the decision to apply and uh, actually getting membership was the period in which the six invented first the common agricultural policy and then the means of financing it uh, under enormous pressure from the French uh, arrangements which uh, worked extremely badly for Britain and which came fully into force after Britain joined just coinciding with the arrival of Mrs. Thatcher in 1979. Uh, She then spent the next five years uh, trying to uh, alter the balance back uh, so that the costs of membership in the EU were not so disastrous as they had almost been deliberately designed to be. Uh, And it took five years and it was very hard work. Um, uh, Later, uh, Tony Blair um, was instrumental in getting a reform of the CAP through with the Commission with strong support from Commissioner Fischler. Um, uh, That's not over, but nevertheless, the CAP looks substantially different. You don't hear about butter mountains and wine lakes anymore. So, um, and after, and I should say that after Mrs. Thatcher had dealt with the budget problem, she then went on to give the EU a positive agenda in the shape of uh, the single market. and she pushed a more liberal trade policy uh, in the EU um, uh, and a greater openness to enlargement. Um, All of those have been successful policies. Enlargement in particular, I think, was the great strategic success of the post-Cold War period. Mrs. Thatcher didn't fight those fights because she thought we should then drop out of the European Union. She didn't like it very much, but the point was to make it something which Britain could live with. This story underlines the two reasons uh, why Britain should continue to be in the European Union. One is the negative reason, uh, that if you're outside, um, uh, what the others can do to you can cause considerable damage. Um, What Douglas Hurd called the nightmare we were always, that always alarmed our predecessors, a continental union influencing British lives over which we had no control. Um, the second reason is a positive one, which is that, uh, to quote Archimedes, give me a lever long enough, a fulcrum strong enough, and somewhere to stand, and I can move the world. Well, the European Union represents somewhere to stand. That was what uh, Macmillan Wilson and Heath were aiming for. Um, And I think it hasn't, in the end, worked badly for Britain. 
to those two arguments for being, for being in, which you might describe as classical realist arguments, there's a third argument. Um, in the cabinet discussions about joining the European Union, when the others had gone round the table and had argued this or that detail, um, uh, Lord Longford's turn to speak came. Um, and he said first a couple of remarks about agricultural policy and then said, well, of course we have to support the European Union. We're in favour of world government, aren't we? <laughs> well, actually, I think it was part of the Labour manifesto at the time, so he was quite right. Um, uh, and I have a bit of sympathy with, uh, with Lord Longford. Uh, world government may seem a long way off, uh, but we have a global economy we have global problems like climate change. Um, and if we're going to do something about the increasing uh, separation between global economics and, uh, and local politics, uh, then uh, it's not wrong to think about world government. Um, and Europe, which in a way raises exactly the same problems, is a step in that direction. I also believe and I guess that uh, Lord Longford would have agreed with me, uh, that states live better in communities. Hobbes' famous phrase, describing man in a world without order, talks of continual fear and the danger of violent death. And the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short, my computer actually rejected the word brutish and kept trying to put British in. <laughs> um, uh, but the reason, the reason I read that, that quote was because of the order of the words. Hobbes writes, the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And he puts solitary first uh, because it's the most important. Uh, the same, it seems to me, is true of states. Alone, in continual fear of violence, poor, nasty, and being isolated makes life more difficult and more dangerous for states, and the risk of doing something stupid is all the greater. That's the... That's what I think about Britain in Europe. I think that states, in the end are better as communities. I think that Britain has a part to play in Europe. I don't think there is any other option uh, for Britain. Um, I'm now going to say something about the European Union and about what's wrong with it, partly looking at this after 10 years in Brussels from the experience of being inside as well. There's a long list of things that are wrong with it, but I'm going to focus on the one that seems to me most important. Ten years ago, uh, Robert Tagan published an essay and then a book called Paradise and Power in which he described the contrast between the USA, a country which thought primarily in terms of power, and the European Union, which thought in terms of rules. And he quoted Romano Prodi, speaking of Europe as a place where, quotes, the rule of law has replaced the crude interplay of power. Well, the last 10 years 
have demonstrated the failure of both approaches. The US, notably in Iraq, has demonstrated the weakness of power, and in Europe, the Euro crisis has demonstrated the failure of rules. Not only did we have the wrong rules, but I believe that rules are not enough. I'm not going to say more about the euro, uh, except for two things. First, my bet is that it will survive, uh, but that survival is going to entail big changes in the European Union. Some of them you can see happening already. And even as a non-euro country, uh, the UK should keep in mind uh, the cardinal rule of diplomacy today uh, that sovereignty is not preserved by being on your own. Sovereignty is preserved by being involved in decision-making. Sovereignty is a seat at the table. The second thing I would say about the euro is that there are many things wrong with its construction, but I believe that one of the problems, maybe even the core problem, has been the lack of a visible political authority. The EU as a whole, in fact, looks to me too much like an attempt to do government without politics. This was necessary at the start when the founders of the community were trying precisely to get around politics and were using economics to create a community. Um, uh, so that uh, and in those days the community was focused on things like the coal and steel industry, like tariff negotiations, and you could get away without politics. Uh, but it's no longer true. Brussels, everybody says, is too bureaucratic. That is true, but that is a way of saying it's not political enough. The heart of the problem is that we have given the European institutions a lot of power. Some would say too much power, but we have not given them any political authority. This impacts on the whole way in which the system operates. It's difficult to find where responsibility lies. At national level, when things go wrong, uh, ministers resign. Well, sometimes. <laughs> or governments are thrown out. That doesn't happen in Europe. It's difficult to take decisions quickly. Money in Brussels has to be spent in accordance with the agreed rules. Everybody studies the rules to see if it's legally correct rather than to ask if it's politically right. As the quotation from Romano Prodi says, it's a system of law, but it's a system which also quickly becomes obsessed by procedure. Is it the rule of law, I sometimes ask myself in Brussels, or is it the rule of lawyers? I would prefer something that was uh, uh, centred on policy and driven by politics rather than by the rules and regulations. And thirdly, it's difficult to change things. The method of making the rules is complicated and once they've been agreed, you're stuck with them. Everybody knows that the financial regulation, one of the key instruments, has got a lot wrong with it, but no one dares touch it. Of course, the decisions in Europe are made by political figures, ministers in the council, uh, European parliamentarians. The parliament is powerful in many areas, but its claim to legitimacy is weak. Not many people understand what it does, and fewer and fewer vote for it. 
The council is a real political actor, especially at the summit level, and it has real legitimacy, and people do feel that they're represented by it. But amid these elected bodies, the most powerful single voice is that of the Commission. It has the key role in the legislative process, where it alone has the right to propose legislation. That's a very considerable power. Anybody who's been involved in legislation will know that the question of whose draft is going to be on the table is a very important question. And that isn't just the first draft. That goes on right the way through the process. If the Commission doesn't like it, doesn't agree it, if you can't force them to change their mind, the Commission's draft remains as it is. Others can put coalitions together to block legislation. It's the Commission which has more or less a veto. The Commission is also the executive, and it spends very considerable sums of money. Sometimes there will be a political plan, but more often they will be following the rules. President of the Commission is now chosen in a rather complicated way that few outside Brussels understand. The European Parliament has an increasing say in this, but if only insiders understand the process, how legitimate is that? I don't wish to criticise individuals, either in the European Parliament or in the, or in the Commission. The Commission is not evil. In fact, the Commission is normally very sensible and one of the more liberal bodies in Brussels. On the other hand, there's something wrong with a system in which very powerful actors are of questionable legitimacy. It's easy to see why, this, why some regard this as a system of insiders, the more so as both the Commission and the European Parliament sometimes give the impression uh, that their main aim is to increase their own powers. We've thus created bodies with great powers, but, uh, and I return to my theme, um, uh, but with little political authority. This affects the way they operate. I miss the balance that I found in Britain between a civil service, which tends to be prudent, and politicians who add an element of excitement, uh, who see the wood for the trees, uh, who want to change things. Uh, that's the political element, and one that's missing in the European Union. We ought to care about this, because the European Union and the treaties are a part of the British Constitution. British government is now looking at whether the powers of the EU might be reduced. I'm not necessarily against that, but they might at the same time consider whether the authority to exercise the powers could be increased. The way to do that, in my view, would be to elect the Commission. That would be a big step, uh, and it needs debate. Um, I know there are arguments against, and I'm going to mention a couple of them, and some of the arguments are powerful, but I'm going to put the case forward. And when I say elect the Commission, what I'm talking about is not elect the President of the Commission, the proposal which is discussed now. I'm talking about elect the whole Commission as a slate. Um, 27, if you want to put forward 27, maybe less if you think 27 Commissioners is too much, would have to look for votes all over Europe. You'd have a fixed team, probably you'd have two teams competing. So um, you would, well, and I'm now into the arguments of saying of saying why. I have really three, there are three arguments, it seems to me, for this. 
apart from what I've already said, which is that here is a very powerful body uh, which doesn't seem to be clearly responsible to anybody uh, which is unknown and which has got very limited legitimacy. It's a random collection of individuals nominated mostly by heads of government. Sometimes they meet each other for the first time uh, after they've been nominated. An elected commission would have to have internal coherence. Uh, It would be assembled around a program. Um, uh, The voters would have a chance to see the commission as a whole and would know what they were getting. Second, the process of election would mean that for once political leaders would have to explain what the European Union does and would have to sell it to the people. At the moment, rather, the opposite takes place. Uh, Whenever governments have things to do that they would rather not do, but they know they've got to do them, they blame the European Union for it. There's a lot of that going on at the moment. No one has an incentive at the moment to speak up for the European Union. You only get that if you have an election a real European election. Unfortunately, European parliamentary elections are fought on national tickets, mostly. So the first reason is you get a better commission. The second reason is you get better communication. And the third reason is the commission would then understand the people better, would listen to the people. Elections are a form of two-way communication, and the experience of explaining the European Union to the people would be an important one. At present, if the Commission is responsible to anybody, it's not to the people, it's to the European Parliament and the Court. Both of those bodies tend to be in favour of more Europe. An elected Commission might exercise some kind of countervailing power. There are counter-arguments, and before I finish, I'm going to mention a couple of those. The first argument, actually the one that I find most powerful, is that it might not work. Um, uh, maybe democracy just doesn't work on a continental scale maybe that's what the experience of the European Parliament tells us maybe politics has to remain local I don't know Um, maybe it won't work because democracy itself is fading because people no longer feel themselves represented by representatives in Parliament because they'd rather do it on radio phone-ins or internet chat rooms. And maybe in the future we'll, we'll come round to that. But for the moment, it's all we've got in the way of democracy. And if you want democratic legitimacy, I can't think of anyone else, anything else. But I think what I would say is, um, if you're creating a new constitutional settlement, and that's what we're perpetually doing, doing in Europe, uh, one ought to be prepared to try things and then change your mind. Actually, I think that the states in Central Europe, uh, sensible ones, gave themselves constitutions with a bit of flexibility. You never know how it's going to work out. So I would say, with Europe, we ought to be ready to make some experiments. Why not do try this for uh, 10 years? See if it worked. See what people, see what people thought. Um, if it didn't work, try something else. Well, the EU itself is an experiment. We keep changing the treaty, so why not do the experiment properly? (laughs) The second argument against an electing a commission is, uh, is one that I don't agree with at all. The second argument says, you can't do that. Electing the commission would make them much too powerful. Well, that's a complete... That's that's just simply wrong. 
The Commission is already powerful. Electing them doesn't make them powerful. It makes them accountable. Aren't we in favour of that? If the body is already powerful, then let's make it accountable. Reduce the powers, if you like. But if you give them some kind of legitimacy, then they'll be able to exercise the powers in a more political fashion that will respond much better to what they see, that will make Europe feel in some way, make people feel in some way that they belong to to Europe. I, I think personally that this would go well with a rigorous look at the powers of the European Union. Um, uh, maybe we ought to um, uh, involve national parliaments in the question of subsidiarity, the question of which powers should be operated in Brussels and which should be at, at national level. Uh, uh, because I sympathize with those people who sort of see all power being sucked out of national legislatures. That doesn't seem healthy either. Maybe national legislatures should be involved in that. But uh, in all of these cases, let's at the heart of the system have a body which is legitimate uh, and which has real political authority and therefore freedom to act. Thank you. We're going to move straight on to the next speaker or discussant, uh, John Pete, on my immediate left, European editor for The Economist magazine. Uh, John, and then move on to Richard. John. Uh, five minutes, ten? Yes. Okay, five. maybe ten. Um, so maybe maybe fifteen. Well, no, I think I'll try and make it ten. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a great honour to be here. Um, I was very flattered that Robert should have asked me to be a discussant. Um, I always thought that he himself was one of the good reasons for Britain staying in the European Union. Um, so I think his um, inaugural lecture um, is, is a good moment to reflect on the future shape of the European Union. And I begin to feel I'm sort of sitting in Philadelphia, so you know, this could be uh, interesting, interesting times. Um, I think I, I do want to concentrate my comments on, on the election of the Commission, but I, I can't resist saying a couple of things about the UK and Europe, and then about the elephant in the room. Um, the UK and Europe, um, I obviously subscribe, although not everybody in my publication does, to the view that the UK should remain in Europe for, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, and I think the UK has benefited from being a member of the European project. Um, and I very much share Robert's view that the UK suffered quite badly in the period between 1961 and 1973 um, from not being in the project. But I would like to add just two, I think I, I'm thinking of them in my mind as footnotes to what he said. I strongly agree that this was a political project from the beginning. And indeed, that's why Britain didn't join it. Um, and that's why Britain wanted instead to set up the European Free Trade Area. And the, the, the line that you hear from some parts of the Conservative Party now, which is, well, we joined a free trade club. And then suddenly it's transformed itself into a political club. And that's terrible. They've done it without consulting the British people, and therefore we need a re another referendum, is, I think, um, a complete misreading of history. But I do nevertheless think that economics played a role, because my reading of what, uh, particularly the debate in the early 1970s up, up to and including the referendum was that I think although it was a political project it was sold to the British people on the grounds that it would benefit the British economy and I think a decisive um, argument during the 60s mm. and early 70s was that Britain was losing ground to this new wonderful, wonderfully successful club 
in economic terms, and that if we joined, somehow or other, it would transform the British economy for the better. And one of the tragedies of Britain's European story is that we happened to join the club at precisely the moment when it ran out of economic steam um, and started to look rather less impressive. So we missed out on the good years of the 60s and we got in in the, in the early 70s, and that has uh, coloured our debate. As, as Robert said, as has the fact that many of the things in the European project, European economic communities, as it then was, were designed specifically to disadvantage the UK. That was one footnote. The second footnote was this question of whether it's always good to be at the table. On the whole, yes, I do share that. As a diplomat, I'm sure all diplomats think you must be at the table, and that has actually long been um, a strong view of, of the British government. I think it's actually changed in the last two years. I think they've now got to a point of saying we don't care whether we're at the table or not. In fact, sometimes we'd rather not be at the table. I think that's, that is a mistake. But on one enormous project, the single European currency, of course, we did choose to stay outside. And I think we were right to stay outside. I, at the time, was in two minds. But I think, I think looking back, we clearly were right to stay outside. And I think we're better off outside now. Um, the question of how you can stay outside and still have influence is a very big one for the future. And that is why I, I come to my elephant in the room. Those are my two footnotes on Britain. My elephant in the room, of course, is indeed the euro crisis, which Robert mentioned several times, but he then slightly glossed over and said, I'm not going to solve it and I'm not going to address it, but I'm going to make, make assumptions about it. Of course, what happens to the euro crisis is the big thing about the future of this project. I think that if the euro fails, the future of the European Union will be bleak and it may not have a future at all. A future at all. And although my conclusion is similar to Robert's, that the odds favour it staying, um, staying uh, it, there is a serious risk that I, that, that will be wrong, in which case everything we're talking about will become completely pointless. And I think that that is worth remembering when people start discussing the future constitution, as it were, of Europe. Yeah. But now on this very interesting question of what we should do about, uh, in a sense, uh, it is a tired phrase, the democratic deficit, but it's become more important because it is clear that a resolution of the euro crisis will involve more Europe, a more integrated Europe, possibly losing some powers, as Robert interestingly suggested, but clearly with a much bigger role over fiscal policy um, and, and quite a lot of aspects of, of economic policy more generally, it definitely raises big questions about accountability and legitimacy of, of, of the, the, the project. So I think it's absolutely right that people should be starting to debate this subject, and they are starting to, particularly in Germany, although um, as a footnote to that, not at all so far in France, which I think um, uh, tells you something about French attitudes to this project and also suggests that the next few years may be rather difficult in the relationship between Germany and France. Um, I think what I want to do is just to offer some reasons why I'm not sure that Robert's solution will work. Um, the first and most obvious, I don't think there is a European demos. Um, this argument is slightly circular because some of those who advocate electing the European Commission believe that if you had elections for the European Commission, you would create a European demos. It's possible that that's right, but I remember people saying the same thing about the European Parliament, and I'm afraid I believe that the European Parliament has been a failure, not a failure in institutional terms or in terms of what it does. In terms of what it does as an institution, I think it's actually been re remarkably successful, but it has clearly failed in 
fulfilling the original goal, which was to respond to the desire to give voters rather more say in what goes on in Europe. Because not just in Britain, but also in most other countries, there are one or two exceptions, of which I think Germany may just be one, the ordinary voters don't know what the European Parliament is, they don't know who their MEPs are, they have no idea what the Parliament does, um, and it doesn't, in that sense, give voters any feel that they have, a, they have any influence on this project. Um, and one of my reservations about talking about electing the Commission is that I have sometimes detected a view which is widely shared that the European Parliament hasn't solved this problem. I've detected the notion that maybe if, they, if we haven't solved this problem with an elected European Parliament, let's find another body and elect that instead. Um, and I just worry that those who say let's have a Senate made up of, um, elect of elected representatives of national parliaments, or those who say let's have an elected President or an elected European Commission, are going to find that they will end up in the same boat as we are with the European Parliament. It's there, but it doesn't solve the problem. Um, second um, feeling why I think this might not work, interesting idea as it is, is I think the debate about legitimacy in the euro crisis is drawing much more attention to national parliaments. Um, I have long felt that national parliaments were the missing component of the European project. Um, to some extent it didn't matter that much when it was about perhaps uh, more esoteric subjects, competition, single market, and so on. As Europe moves into areas of actually telling countries you cannot borrow what you thought you could borrow, you cannot spend on what you thought you could spend on, it's clearly um, moving into territory that, ha that is the heart of what national parliaments were originally for. National parliaments are essentially about raising money, taxation, and public spending. And I think that this is not a British point, point at all. This is very much a continental point, and it's become, much, it's become particularly clear in the rulings of the Constitutional Court in Germany. Um, there are different um, verdicts on what the judges are really trying to say, so I may be wrong, but my interpretation of what they're really trying to say is that the Bundestag is the central representative of the people and that the Bundestag should be treated in some way as superior to the European institutions, including the European Parliament. Um, and I think if you have an elected commission, you're going to potentially make that problem worse, that the national parliaments will feel they are more excluded and not less. Third point is, uh, Robert said it's not about power. Um, I wonder, if, I wonder if I'm persuaded by his argument. Um, it's a rather nice argument, but I do think that once somebody is elected, power will accrue to them. Um, you could imagine a situation where you say, OK, well, we are going to start limiting what you do and so on, and we're going to try and reinforce the, the role of, the national, um, uh, of national governments um, at your expense. But I think in the end, an elected body will acquire more power. Indeed, this is one of the arguments that we've seen in the UK about, about the House of Lords versus the House of Commons. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that's a terrible thing, but I do think that the way the European project has evolved, particularly recently, it is a bit of a power game, and the power rests with basically Angela Merkel and some other heads of government. Actually, it's now basically Angela Merkel. Um, and I think we did see that in the Lisbon Treaty, which I know um, 
in the aftermath of the Lisbon Treaty, which I know Robert was in favour of, in the choice of the President of the European Council and indeed in the choice of Robert's erstwhile boss. They clearly took a decision that in this game they wanted to make sure that the real power continued to rest with heads of government and not in Brussels. Um, And I think with an elected commission, the difficulty of balancing national leaders against Brussels will become much more difficult. It It will become much harder. I think myself that I'm with the national leaders on this. I'm, I'm instinctively more intergovernmentalist than I suspect Robert is. Um, but I just think if, you, if we pursue this argument, you need to address the issue of Angela Merkel clearly has legitimacy. I'm not sure that the Brussels people will. And then if I... Have I run out of time? Okay, now let me just make a couple of smaller points about... about um, about, about the whole idea of an elected commission. Um, I mean, one of them I've implicitly mentioned. I think doing anything Europe-wide is extremely ambitious. Even now, well, we have tried repeatedly to say the commission should not represent national governments, but we tried in, in both the Constitutional Treaty and the original Lisbon Treaty to say there should be fewer commissioners than there are member states. And one of the reasons the Irish voted no was because they didn't like that. They were worried they were going to lose their commissioner. And in the press today, uh, let's not go into the press in Europe, it's a terrible, it's a sad story, but when you do look at the press comment on on Brussels today here, a lot of people say, well, look, one of the problems with Cathy Ashton, apart from her allegedly being useless, is she's not there when the Commission meets. She's always somewhere else, and we need to have our person at the table. So there is is an issue about the current view of the Commission as somehow representing... um, individual um, member states that that I think you would obviously lose in your model and I wonder if people would be very happy about that. And my last, I think perhaps small point is I wonder how easy it would be for the Commission to function as a college in areas like competition policy as guardian of the treaty if it's elected as a slate because at the moment the President of the Commission actually has quite a lot of power and when it comes to the budget it's the President for example who counts. If it's an elected slate I wonder if the President would have quite as much power within the body and therefore whether it's functioning as a college might become more difficult. But I do think it's a very interesting idea. And perhaps a courageous one. <laughs> Thank you very much, John. We move straight on to Richard. Richard Corbett, current advisor to President Herman Van Rompuy. Richard. Thank you. If I, if I could uh, also start with a footnote uh, before <laughs> yeah, getting on to... Everyone's being academic. <laughs> before getting on to what I was going to say, <laughs> which is this question of what is sometimes called the Eurozone crisis. I mean, Albert Einstein always... Uh, what I once said that to every complex problem there is a very simple solution that is wrong. <laughs> um, and those who look at the economic crisis that has hit the world and especially the West over the past few years, the biggest economic downturn since the 1930s, and simply say, ah, oh, this is all the fault of the euro are falling into that trap. I know that there are some who have a vested interest in being able to blame the euro for everything, but reality is, I think, a little bit more complex. It's the biggest economic downturn in the euro area and outside the euro area in the rest of Europe and North America since the Great Depression. It has revealed failings in the euro structure. It has revealed failings in our single European market of all 27 member states in the financial sector and how we regulate and supervise that. It has revealed failings at national level in many countries, 
failings of supervision, failings of uh, public finance. But it's not the Eurozone or the Euro itself that caused the crisis, nor now is it the crisis. It's part of a much wider picture. The biggest immediate threat is the excessive level of sovereign debt in some countries in the euro. We've all heard, of course, of Greece, Spain and others. Also outside the euro, Romania, Hungary, Latvia have also had bailout loans. Nobody talks of them. Tiny little Iceland, you may remember, a few years ago, not even in the EU, caused enough havoc when it risked a disorderly default. And if any one of these countries, inside or outside, had a disorderly default, the repercussions would not, would, 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 it would affect the whole of Europe, not just those in the Eurozone. Having a separate currency, maintaining a separate currency, hasn't made Britain immune from this by any, in any sense of the word. word. Whether we like it or not, we are interdependent. That was my footnote, going off onto the economics of the Eurozone, <laughs> provoked by you, John. <laughs> On the European Union and its evolution, I think it will survive for the very reasons that Robert said, which I sometimes articulate in a slightly different way. The three motivations, the three driving forces for having a European Union in the first place remain there and will not go away. They are idealistic, pragmatic and selfish. Idealistic, as Robert said, was the original driving force in a continent where almost every generation from the fall of the Roman Empire till 1945 had gone out and fought each other on the battlefields of Europe, we simply had to find a better way of doing business. That's what the EU is. That was the original reason it was set up. And I know that this is often poo-pooed in Britain nowadays. Oh, yes, but that was years ago. We've passed that stage. There are parts of Europe where this is still a novelty and they value it strongly. And that remains valid even if we take it for granted. The second reason, pragmatic, whether we like it or not, we are a group of highly interdependent countries in the same corner of the world. Economically interdependent, environmentally interdependent, interdependent in foreign policy, in terms of our trading position on the world stage we need to find common solutions to our common problems. This is the structure that we have evolved over two generations now to cater with that. It is a structure that's not perfect, that will still evolve, about which there will still be arguments. But the need for such a structure will not go away. And the third reason is selfish. From, let's say, Britain's point of view, since we're in London, um, the reasons that Robert alluded to, to be at the table in foreign policy terms, but the reason in economic terms as well. This is the world's largest single market. Most of Britain's exports go to that market. Three and a half million jobs in Britain depend on that. It's vital to have a voice around the table where the common rules for that common market are being shaped. Opting out and having to accept the rules with, without being part of the decision-making process is nonsense. So are these three driving forces, are these things that I think will make the project 
continue even if it changes are they strong enough to to continue without it coming under undue pressure with the crisis are they strong enough to address the challenges that Robert threw up in terms of democratic accountability is it seen to be a democratic project well actually the this theme has featured in the last five revisions of the European Union treaties the single acts Maastricht, Amsterdam, Nice, Lisbon have all inter alia addressed the question of democratic accountability each one has made incremental changes but cumulatively the European Union that we see today is a completely different animal from the European community of the 1970s in terms of democratic accountability what has changed the 1970s you could say it was all behind closed doors commission putting proposals to ministers a collusion of bureaucrats diplomats and technocrats since then that has been opened up in several ways step by step for a start there are quite a few safeguards meetings when dealing with legislation even of the council of ministers have to be in public there are safeguards as respect fundamental rights that cannot be violated by the European institutions without being challenged in court. There are safeguards as respect citizens' access to documents and the right of access to documents. All kinds of things like that that are now set down in law as safeguards, just in case. There is a role that has now been provided for national parliaments. Any proposal for union legislation or budget is now first sent to national parliaments who have an eight-week period to look at it before the Council or the European Parliament can even take a position on them, can begin their work. That eight-week period is ostensibly to allow them to object that a proposal violates the principle of subsidiarity. In other words, this, this idea should not be within the remit of the EU, it should be national. It's not, not a matter for European-level competence and there's a procedure for them to if enough of them object there's a yellow card if a few more object there's an orange card not quite a red card but actually it's called orange because it was the Dutch that proposed it and their football team plays in orange but anyway that causes a proposal to be re-examined and potentially withdrawn that won't happen very often I think because most commission proposals especially nowadays when most of them are to revise existing legislation not new ideas they rarely violate the principle of subsidiarity. This new procedure has only been used once so far. But what it does change is that national parliaments, at least those that organise themselves properly, now actually have a chance to shape the position that their minister is going to take in the council before he or she goes to Brussels, instead of just hearing about it afterwards. And I think that more and more national parliaments will do what the Nordic countries already do, in those countries, any minister going to a council meeting next week will go before a national parliamentary meeting this week and say, look, this is what's on the agenda, this is the position I intend to take, and they have a chance to discuss it, debate it, change the position that the minister is going to take, and shape it beforehand, not afterwards. That is a tremendous step forward. I think that practice will spread across Europe. The Irish Parliament earlier this year changed its procedures to model them on the uh, Nordic model. That's national parliaments. Second, 
the European Parliament. With the successive changes, it is now impossible to adopt virtually any legislation at European level without the approval of the European Parliament. Also the budget, the multi-annual financial framework, international agreements signed by the European Union, delegating powers to the Commission, um, appointing a Commission, choosing a President of the Commission. All now require the European Parliament's approval. And unlike many national parliaments, the European Parliament is not a rubber stamp parliament. There is no inbuilt automatic governing majority. If I compare the European Parliament to the House of Commons, let me exaggerate slightly to make the point. When the government presents a bill to the House of Commons, you know what the outcome is going to be. It's headline news if the Commons actually amends a bill against the will of the government. It doesn't happen very often. They'll have a good debate on it, that's very important, but they don't shape the legislation much. The European Parliament's very different. A Commission proposal really is a first draft. The European Parliament, the MEPs, reshape it, amend it, and you have to do that in the European Parliament by building your majority issue by issue. There is no overall majority for any single party, nor a governing majority. So it's a successive process of, of explanation, persuasion and negotiation to build that majority. It really comes back to the old idea of what parliaments, parler, were about, to talk things through to shape an idea, to build up a position, to try and build broad majorities and consensus. That is the great strength of the European Parliament. The downside is that it's not so visible. It's not blood on the carpet, yaboo stuff that the public, especially in some countries, is used to. And it's not, therefore, as visible, and I'll come back to this point later, as visibly democratic as national parliaments can be. But that's also for another reason. It was interesting, though, last year, two years ago, when the European Parliament <coughs> rejected the SWIFT agreements with the USA. This allowed the Americans to access certain types of data in the European Union because it felt of, of citizens across Europe because the European Parliament felt there weren't sufficient, sufficient data protection safeguards. I remember it happened the day of a European Council meeting. All the heads of state and government were in the room. The news came through. Shock horror. The European Parliament's rejected this agreement, but we were all for it. We all agreed it. How can it do this? They were all used to the traditional system in most European countries that governments have compliance majorities in their national parliament. How could this happen? The Americans, they understood straight away. They were used to a Congress system that doesn't always automatically agree with the executive, with the president. They simply rolled up their sleeves, put no less than 20 diplomats onto lobbying the European Parliament. They sent Vice President Joe Biden to address the Parliament. Hillary Clinton met all the political group leaders in the Parliament. And a compromise was found, more by a work of the Americans than by work of our own national governments. So although the European Parliament is sometimes criticised, it does actually play a very important democratic role. The point was made, though, that turnout in European elections has been falling. Actually, the order of magnitude of this decline 
is that is no greater than the order of magnitude in the decline in turnout mm. for national parliamentary elections in some countries. It's a challenge for democracy at all levels, not necessarily peculiar to the European Parliament. The turnout now is about the same level as for the US House of Representatives, by the way much higher than in local elections in most of our countries, lower than national elections, which is what you'd expect. It's, it's less important than national elections. But one peculiarity of the European elections is that when we are... What makes it different from national elections is that when most of us vote in national parliamentary elections, certainly in Europe, we are actually thinking about the government, aren't we? We want to keep this government or throw it out. It's not about the so much about the Parliament as such. And if there's a change in majority, it's visible. It's very visible in Britain, not normally. The, f the furniture vans come into Downing Street the, day, the morning after, if there's a change of majority. Less direct in countries like, say, the Netherlands, where it can take months after an election to cobble together a coalition. But even there, the people realise, in voting for the Parliament, you've distributed the cards, as it were, among different political viewpoints which will determine the government. Up to now, that's not visible in European elections. All that is at stake is the exact balance between political groups in the Parliament. But it is going to change. There will now, with the Lisbon Treaty, be a link between the results of European elections and the choice of President of the Commission. It doesn't go as far as Robert says, which is a direct election of the Commission as a whole. That might be a good idea, but to do that you would need to change the treaty, ratified unanimously by every member state and every <coughs> national parliament. I don't think there is yet sufficient political consensus for that, and there may never be. But electing the President of the Commission by the European Parliament is going to happen. It's in the Lisbon Treaty. In future, when the European Council makes a nominee, which is straight after the European elections, by the way, it is legally obliged to take account of the European election results and nominate a candidate to be elected, says the Treaty, by the European Parliament. And that makes it a little bit similar to a head of state who has to choose a candidate, Prime Minister, if you like, capable of assembling a parliamentary majority. That's the idea. What will determine whether this works or not is whether European political parties decide that they are going to nominate their candidates and name their potential candidates ahead of the European elections. So that when you vote, you know that if you vote this way or that way, so-and-so or somebody else is likely to be the chief executive, the head of Europe's day-to-day -day governing body, if you're an executive body. That will, over time, perhaps not work fully the first time, but over time will change the nature of the European elections. Make it much more visible to citizens that the effect of casting their vote also changes the executive branch as they, as they are used to in national contexts. Politicise the elections. Make the choice between the European political parties, the Socialists, the Christian Democrats, the Liberals, the Greens and so on, have a face to identify them, not just a programme that differs if you actually read the manifesto, which most people don't. So that, I think, is what is likely to happen. It's a step perhaps in the direction that Robert advocates, but not nearly so radical. And whereas his idea would require treaty change, I don't think it's going to happen. This idea is going to happen. 
And uh, whether it works or not well is going to be one of the most interesting questions at the next European elections. Thank you very much. I'm going to suggest before we move quickly on to Q&A, I'll just give Robert three or four minutes just to maybe quickly respond to some of these questions. And then we move to, to Q&A and you can ask what you like. I'll, I'll just... I'll just make two points, one about each of the interventions. Well, John seemed to me to be like one of those lawyers who says, uh, in the first place, my client wasn't there, and in the second place, if he was there, he didn't kill his wife, or whatever it is. Um, Because he started saying, um, he said, well, uh, this really wouldn't work because... Uh, there isn't such a thing as a European demos, you wouldn't get people to turn out. I agree, that could be a problem because you don't know until you, until you, until you try. Um, and I kind of worry about... I think we should worry about democratic surplus as well as democratic deficit of having elections to which people don't come. And, uh, and I, hope that, I hope that Richard's right and that gradually... This, but I'll come back to Richard in a second. But then... Having said this wouldn't work, uh, his second objection to this was that it might work and the result would be a commission which would have too much legitimacy and would therefore be really powerful and that would be undesirable too. So, um, as I say, it seems to me to be a kind of slightly white hallway of saying we don't like this, it's not what what exists at the moment. Um, I mean, Richard is probably right that probably this is a kind of fantasy, um, except that if you look at what's happened in the European Union over the last 10 or 20 years, lots of things which people didn't believe happened uh, for good or bad have actually happened. So you never know. Um, if, If what Richard is saying comes about that people gradually understand that when they elect the European Parliament they're also in practice electing but then I would like to see the whole commission because one it's more than one person let's see um, uh, if that was to happen maybe that's a way of doing it for my part I like the idea of people going direct to the people and saying this is my team I've decided not to have 27 because I think that's a waste of space I'm only going to have 15, but they're people who represent all of the regions of Europe and they're the best people that you can get and this is our program. Um, um, I agree with you. This is, this is at the moment political fantasy, but you never know. You never know. Maybe it would work. But if, if your method works, if the European Parliament elections are seen as elections for executive, people see that they've got a clear choice that's going to make a real impact on their lives... Uh, Maybe, maybe that's it, but that's what's missing. But what is really necessary is that somehow, from the point of view of somebody who's kind of worked there, you actually need to have a political body in charge, otherwise you finish up with nothing but rules and bureaucrats. Right. A number of hands have already uh, shot up. I'll take a hand here from Ian Bag, and then take two at a time, Ian and then Mary Calder. Ian. Thank you. Speak up, Ian, because I'll check the people at the back. I'm using the microphone. <laughs> the, the futures for Europe include the idea of political union. 
But political union, as we all know, is an extremely slippery term. It can mean many things and is interpreted in different ways by different interlocutors. So the question I have is, on your best guess of what political union is likely to mean, what will it comprise, and can Britain live with it? Okay. Uh, take, one, take a second one from Mary. Take one, okay. Well, I'm ready to sign up for electing a commission, and I'm also keen on the idea that the political party should nominate a president, and maybe we could have primaries like in America, and all of that to try and create. (laughs) So I'm all in favour of all those ideas, but my problem is what is the nature of the democratic deficit? And I think the deficit is about the ability of citizens to affect the decisions that affect their lives. And I'm not sure by itself all of these will affect that. And it seems to me what we need to be thinking about is the nature, the character of the European Union as a political institution. Is it a bigger nation state, in which case decisions will be very remote from the citizens? Or is it actually, which is what Robert hinted at in his third argument, a new model of global governance, a way in fact of protecting the local from the bad effects of globalization and, and increasing the good effects. I mean, at the moment, it's magnifying the bad effects. But if you imagine it as a model which is, for instance, restricting excessive financial speculation, dealing with, uh, restrict, dealing with climate change, then its functions are very different, and it would actually enhance democracy not only at national levels, but at local levels. So I was wondering if anybody could comment on that. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll take one more bit over there, just to Federico Biki. Federico. Thank you. Uh, two questions, uh, two quick questions. The first one is, I was a bit surprised to hear about uh, your proposal of uh, uh, electing the European Commission, because... I thought and actually thought that the sexy bits came from the council, from the politics uh, and the political dynamics developed within the council and between the council and the European Parliament, Uh, while the commission had an ethos of, a bit like civil servants, uh, not entering the uh, political arena. And I'm wondering whether an implication of what you're saying is that the council is, in fact, failing its mission and not really representing a venue where politics is discussed. And my second question is that uh, um, I didn't hear much about uh, EU foreign policy. And indeed, we don't hear uh, much about European foreign policy at all in this period uh, from Brussels. But maybe that gives us a good chance to think about what it should or could do. Uh, And therefore, I wonder whether you could spend a minute uh, telling us what you think that uh, uh, Cathy Ashton should do, uh, what are the three main things that uh, she should do in the near future. Okay. Uh, Robert, there's about eight questions there, plus plus a suggestion for having American primaries. I was going to... I was going to escape from... Professor Begg's question by saying that I thought Professor Caldor had answered it beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I, I think it's a very difficult question. It's a very, this term political union is very slippery. Clearly in the context of economic and monetary union, 
the political, political union... I mean, what happened in Maastricht was nonsense. But the political union dimension of the Maastricht Treaty was kind of incorporating what used to be called European political cooperation into the Maastricht Treaty and calling it a common foreign security policy. Uh, and that's not political union relevant to this. Political union must in some way uh, believe be about connecting the policy to the people. Um, now, for me, I don't like the idea of a European state at all. Um, uh, I would like to have a community of states that functions in different ways on, on different subjects, uh, but can act together when they need to do something. As, for example, on the environment, the, such progress as we've had wouldn't have taken place without the European Union. I think that... Uh, uh, so I, I don't want political union in the sense of a European state. I think this would be a failure. Um, uh, but let's... The Europe is there to make the states function better. And on the whole, I think it does that and enable them to function at the global level. But the instruments for that develop. On European foreign policy, I, I think it's too big to start now. Hmm. Maybe, maybe I give another lecture sometime. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> John, did you want to... Come in on any of that or just... Well, maybe Richard? later. Okay, fine. Could I, could I ask the Queen's question? Remember when the Queen came to this building to open it, and she turned to an economist, poor chap, and said, why didn't you predict it? Um, and, and he's still got his job, by the way. Um, and he, he, I, I can't remember. Anyway, let me ask the Queen's question, in a sense, about, about the crisis, not being an EU specialist, as, as my colleagues know. But one thing that strikes me is that for 20 years I've been hit over the head by all my colleagues by saying, why the hell didn't you predict the end of the Cold War? And I've been apologising ever since, and then I've been making up stories and reinventing my history and then telling you that I really did predict it, but I didn't, you know. Um, was the, were there institutional and, institu and intellectual reasons as to why so many experts, including yourselves, didn't see this coming at all? Because my impression is you didn't, and I'd really like to know why. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, although Robert has appointed me to Whitehall, which no, no. is very <laughs> flattering, I am, I am just a commentator. I did, <laughs> no, I did, you're, you're an expert. Now. I actually did write um, a right. survey of you EU in 1999, mm. um, and in retrospect, I got it wrong. Um, my argument then was that it, was, it seemed to me blindingly obvious that if member governments continued, as they had done in the 80s and 90s, um, this project might well fall apart because um, it brought together countries that were, had completely different rules for the labour markets and so on, and, it, and it, would, it, would, it would make it very difficult for those that lost competitiveness to, to, stay in, to stay in the club. The reason why I thought that wouldn't happen is I thought that was very obvious, and that if you were Italy, Greece, Portugal or Spain, you would realise in 1999, or in the case of Greece, 2001, that by surrendering control of monetary policy and the possibility of devaluation forever, which is what they were doing, you immediately raise questions about could you, could you live with a competitive Germany, could you live with a competitive Netherlands, what were you going to do about your labour market rules, and so on. And I thought that the conclusion they would draw was that by joining EMU they had to make massive structural reforms to their economies. Uh, I, 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 I miss 
understood the nature of politics because actually what they did was they thought, well, now we've got into the euro, we don't really need to do anything more because we're now in the club. And, um, and unfortunately, financial markets encouraged that thought by immediately buying all their debt on the basis that maybe a Greek bond wasn't really all that different from a German bond. And so the pressure on them to reform actually dissipated rather than increased. Um, I'm not sure that means I got it completely wrong. No. I think I misunderstood the way governments would respond to the, <coughs> to the project. And, and why didn't the bankers predict it? I mean, the bankers were betting gigantic sums of money on the idea that the Greek economy was very similar to the German economy. Yeah. It's, and, pay, and they were paid much more than you or I. Yes. <laughs> much more than me, I can assure you. Richard, Richard, come yeah. I think this is where the Einstein quote applies. Even yeah, I, I thought you'd bring Einstein back into this. And I think it's a debate in itself. Uh, that yeah, it's multifaceted. Yeah. And, uh, and there's black swan theory as well. So I, if you don't mind, I'd no, no, go back and answer, answer some the other the questions, questions the that we yeah, didn't, yeah. didn't look at before. <laughs> Primary election. The Party of European Socialists has adopted a procedure... Uh, whereby if internally there's more than one candidate, there has to be a primary election of every member of all of its member parties, which includes the British Labour Party. Only party members, but nonetheless it's a sort of primary election. So that will be an interesting one to watch if that, if that occurs. Political union, I, I agree, with what you said, everyone defines it differently. For me, you know, we have a European Union. It is pretty political, isn't it? <laughs> So what do people mean when they say it? They have to define, they have to be precise, otherwise it's a debate in a vacuum. And I think the answer was right. It's about making sure political choices can visibly happen at that level. On the democratic deficits, I was told recently that the first, by an academic, no less, I'm not an academic, that the first article that referred to the democratic deficit was written in 1978 by me when I was 20. <laughs> um, but what I meant at that time was that the powers that national parliaments transferred to the European Union was not, were not being exercised by the European Parliament at that time, but by ministers alone meeting behind closed doors, and that in a democracy, ministers don't adopt legislation. They have to submit it to, parliament for, to parliaments for approval. Since then, that has been remedied. But we still talk of a democratic deficit. I think it's actually more nowadays a problem of distance. These institutions are inevitably and unavoidably more remote from people than national or local institutions. That's a reason not to do things at European level if you don't need to do so. We shouldn't. Subsidiarity should apply. But because we do do and we want to do some things jointly at European level, Let's make sure that the procedures are as transparent, as understandable, and as visibly democratic as possible. And some of the changes we were talking about earlier would move in that direction. Okay, I've got a number of questions over on this side. I'm uh, the young chap there, yeah. And then, yep. Okay, uh, good evening. I actually have two quick remarks and a question. Uh, the first remark was for John Pete about the decision of the German uh, Federal Constitutional Court trying strengthening the Bundestag against uh, EU institutions. I'd say more as a decision to strengthen it against the executive because it's precisely the intergovernmental Europe that is that lacks democratic accountability. Mm. And about the democratic deficits, that's my second remark, it's pretty fashionable, but if you compare how French ministers are chosen and how commissioners are chosen, 
if you if you look at how the how the floors is uh, not elected precisely, <laughs> is there really a lack of democratic uh, of democracy for European <laughs> institutions? Yeah. That's the question. Is actually uh, when I look at the title, one crisis made future. Is it? Isn't it a plurality of crises precisely? Mm -hmm. And is it, isn't it that that makes it so hard to solve this crisis? Okay, thanks very much. Uh, there's a gentleman back here. Um, oh, oh, do, do, that, chuck that. Uh, no, no. no. <laughs> take Please. Good evening. Uh, is it a first statement to say that uh, today financial markets pressure is the key driver of European integration rather than politicians, which are quite reluctant to pursue uh, European integration because of domestic pressure? And do you think that is sustainable in the, in the long term? Okay, and there's one final question up there on the, on the, on the aisle. So I'm, I'm picking up as many... Yeah, yeah, Mark. Mark, yeah. Mark, Mark. Leonard. Um, I agree totally, Robert, with your critique of the lack of politics in the current EU. But I wonder if you could deal a bit more substantively with the, the no demos argument, because I think that the real question about whether there's a European demos or not doesn't relate to whether people would turn out in an election, it's but whether it, yeah. people would be willing to be bound by a majoritarian election. If you have mm. a slate of candidates that is clearly from the right and um, they're elected by... <laughs> 45% of the EU and 55% of people uh, didn't support them felt more kind of left wing and didn't necessarily turn out to vote but didn't really like it um, that could create a, a massive uh, crisis of legitimacy one of the reasons why there isn't any politics at an EU level is because people are, are worried that uh, the whole thing would crumble if, if you were actually allowed to set a clear political direction. That's why the European Parliament is so apolitical, because uh, all the important decisions require a large majority, so you always have a, a kind of mushy compromise be between left and right, which makes it so boring and so, so unappealing to, to watch the, the debates and the decisions that come out of them. But it's also why people haven't completely uh, rejected the system. I mean, in Britain, we always see that when there's a Tory government, the Scottish nationalists tend to do better because they feel disenfranchised by the system and that would happen on a massive scale if, if you had entire countries that felt completely disenfranchised because they had a strong right wing majority and you had a, a left wing European commission or vice versa how, how would you deal with that? Ok there's one final question over here I'm going to take the uh, chap over here with a beard that's you well, easy to identify he's got a beard <laughs> Yeah, please. Thank you. Um, I think I, I want to be a little bit the devil's advocate and say our national parliaments are at least for our generation <coughs> far away and they're generally people we don't really identify with, most of them. What we do is we identify with mayors with not funny beers but funny haircuts. Um, Brussels is even further away and it's, it's just not interesting. It is not sexy. It's not something you want to, you know, you, you, you want to be involved in, especially because we like to... No, I, no, no. I'm not, not criticising you personally, no. but... But it's... Sexiest speaker we've had in three years, you know. <laughs> I think it's, it, Europe is very easy to, to, to discredit because everything good is obviously done by the local pal yeah. uh, 
right. politicians, if not the national parli- right. uh, parliaments. Yeah. Right. And everything bad is always Brussels' right. fault. Right. Um, when I talk to students, what they're, the interesting thing is that European students or students from the European Union never ask anything about Europe. It is the students from Brazil or from Japan who say, hey, what are you doing there? So within Europe, I think, and, and one of my Brazilian students actually this summer told me, um, she thinks it's, it's actually quite a good thing that there is a Euro crisis because finally people in Europe start considering Europe again. Because before that, we could always happily ignore it. And we're very good so. Okay, right. And, uh, who wants to go first? Uh, someone else. <laughs> Where you were? Yeah, bro. Yeah. Well, I'll pick out. Pick one, up anything. I'll pick out one question and leave the, the, yeah, yeah. the difficult ones to the others. <laughs> the question of demos and whether you can have left-right divisions instead of national divisions. But it's interesting in Europe. The, the, the Europe is in the media most often when there's a summit meeting, European Council meeting. And it's presented as some sort of gladiatorial combat between countries in a zero-sum game. You know, did Britain win or lose? Did the Prime Minister get outmaneuvered by a Franco-German deal? It's all one country against another. When you look at the European Parliament, very often the very same issues are coming up. But it's very unusual to see every MEP from one country voting one way and every MEP from another country voting the other way. It doesn't divide nationally. It divides politically. And if you think about it, in many fields, that's the real choices we face. Do you want... Take the legislation that the European Parliament votes on for the single market. Do you want higher standards of consumer protection or do you leave it to the market? Do you want a safeguard for employment legislation, a minimum standard across the European Union, or just leave it to national traditions of collective bargaining? Do you want tougher environmental standards but at greater cost to industry, or not? These are typically left-right, or at least political choices, which are visible in the Parliament. In the Parliament, you'll see there are people from every member state on different sides of that argument. These are arguments that, that run within countries, not between them. That is hidden in the council where a minister comes along and says, my country, this is our position, as if everybody back home agrees with him or her. They don't. There are different views. There is pluralism. That pluralism is visible in the European Parliament. And I think you get a stronger, you get better European politics, you get a stronger sense of European, common European choices, and perhaps move towards the degree of demos at European level if you accentuate that aspect of choices, the policy choices, the political choices, rather than the supposed national choices which are so visible in the Council. Um, yeah, well, just two, perhaps, perhaps three things. Um, uh, let me say I'm not an expert on the German Constitutional Court. I don't know anybody who really is, but I'm certainly not. <laughs> but I, yes, they, they, they clearly want the Bundestag to have a say, and they don't want Angela Merkel just to be able to go to Brussels and say, here's 500 billion, billion euros, do what you like with it. Um, although, actually, it's very difficult getting money out of Angela Merkel in Brussels, as many people are, are finding. But I think they, were all, they did also make some quite disobliging comments about the European Parliament. I mean, some of it was simply on this argument. Look, Luxembourg has six seats, and that it's outrageous because Germany only has, is it 98 or 99 now? Um, and, uh, and it's therefore not representative. But I think there was a sort of undertone of somehow or other the European Parliament doesn't, it doesn't it lack some legitimacy. And I, I do think on this point about 
the democratic deficit. I think those words are the wrong words to use. I, I actually rather agree with you. It is unfortunate that the European Parliament is almost the only parliament I can think of whose turnout has gone down at every election since 1979. So that's, but it's, it's a sort of debating point more than anything else, because, as you said, um, yeah. Congress has a lower turnout. Um, and Congress is also a very unpopular body in America. Yeah. Um, it always comes bottom of the poll, and people say, which institutions do you respect? But... Congress has legitimacy. You can't mm. take it away from them. There is, yeah. It is a legitimate organisation. Nobody ever says, however critical they are of their mm. useless failure to deal with the deficit, nobody argues that somehow or other Congress shouldn't be there. It's the first organisation mentioned in the Constitution before the President. Um, that the European Parliament doesn't have that. Um, I'm not convinced it'll acquire it even after we get Martin Schulz elected as president, although I suspect we won't, actually. Um, uh, because, in a way, I, I, I actually think one reason why I might be brought round to favour Robert's proposal is I think if the president of the European Commission ends up in, in effect being chosen by the European Parliament, I think this may make the problem worse, not better. Um, but I may be wrong. I may be wrong. Um, you know, we'll see. And I thought the point about the euro crisis um, being... A, having served a good purpose by making people think about legitimacy and indeed um, accountability in this club was a very good one. And my final comment was a point back to Ian Begg, which I'm not sure anybody answered. I don't think he was really asking about the nature of political union. I think I interpret his, his question as if we go forward with something that looks like deeper political integration, what will the UK do? And I'm afraid the answer to that is the UK will leave. Okay. Well, your final, final well, and concluding I'm going comments, to, please. I'm going to say two things. First, I'm going to answer Professor Bickey's question. One part of it. What is, uh, what is it that Catherine Ashton should do? The most important thing I think she should do is to make the external service work, uh, because that will remain behind. Um, uh, there are some other things that, that she could do. I think there's something that can be done in the Balkans. I think that things you, should, you can do, you should do, but actually leaving a decent institution behind is something that, that will, will last. Um, on the rest, um, I don't answer Mark because I deliberately avoided drafting the electoral law that would bring about this. I kind of saw it as just a general big European vote. Everybody votes for this or that or the other. But maybe you could devise different uh, electoral laws are often as important as constitutions so I don't really have an answer on that but all I wanted, what I really wanted to, to, to say is that what happens in Brussels is very important uh, it's not so immediate to most people's lives but it sets the framework and it sets the course and we need somehow to dramatise it in a way in which we haven't succeeded so far and that's partly what I see, that's why I think election of the commission because people kind of understand, they've heard of the commission and they might, and they might understand this and people would come forward with programs and say this is what we're going to fix but I also come to this from somebody who worked in the system and who badly I badly feel that you need people at the top who've got authority to cut through the, to throw the lawyers out and cut through all the nonsense and say yes of course we can do this of course, that's what you get from, that's what political leaders are for, and that's missing in Brussels. And uh, uh, so I, drama and authority and those, those things, and, but let's not have them do everything either. Let's also keep the issues that belong locally local. Uh, put all of that together in a package, 
and uh, the thing really could work well. Okay, I'm going to just make a few concluding comments. We've reached 8 o'clock, and I think it's always a good time to end on time. Um, firstly, a, a, a deliberate sales pitch. One of the things Ideas does is bring out special reports. Um, brilliant, uh, incisive, and relatively cheap. Uh, so uh, this is on sale at the back for a very limited uh, £5 or about €6.50. But uh, sterling, please. Um, first and foremost, so they will be on sale at the back. Uh, secondly, just to announce a few ideas forthcoming events which are coming up. I say that today ideas began with John McCain. We had John McCain here in conversation and we ended with Robert Cooper and I'll let you work out what that means about ideas. It certainly shows how plural uh, we are. But we do have a lot of very interesting things coming towards you. Uh, next week, uh, Anne Applebaum, our new Roman professor here, will be speaking on true believers, collaboration and opposition under totalitarian regimes. Following that, we've got the Cuban Missile Crisis revisited, global drug wars, South Sudan's emerging foreign policy, and equally important, the launch of my colleague uh, Arnie Westad's book on China called The Restless Empire, which will be launched on the 1st of November, and I will also be chairing that. Um, that's all I want to say. I want to say thank you to all of you coming this evening. I want to say thank you to John to Richard, but particular thanks to Professor Robert Cooper. Footnotes and all. Robert, welcome to the Oracle. <laughs>